Hey, the recent election in our province really drove home a few points that we've, you know, I don't think they came as news to anybody, but uh, we've seen it emerging. But boy, they really got laid bare. Um, cities moving away from conservative politics, not entirely, not entirely, but all of the seats in Edmonton went NDP. Most of the seats in Calgary went NDP. The smaller cities, the rural areas, more conservative than ever, perhaps a sweep for the NDP, uh, for the UCP outside of Edmonton and Calgary. Um, big cities and rural areas clearly, when it comes to politics, do not view things exactly the same way. And it's not just in Alberta either, right? This, this urban rural divide is something that can be seen well, probably around the world, certainly across the continent and in our country. So can you fix that? Can you bridge that gap? And if so, how? We're going to have a conversation with Sean Spear, who is an editor at large for The Hub and recently wrote a piece about this on The Hub. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we get into fixes, let's talk about the problem we're trying to fix here. Um, um, what what exactly, when we talk, I mean, it's just the fact that we're seeing things, there's a clear division, at least when it comes to voting, but it's more than that, right? I think that's right. I don't know, but if you're like me, probably in the aftermath of Donald Trump's election in 2016, you started to look more carefully at our own country to ask yourself, where might there be fault lines that could emerge that would contribute to the kind of polarization that we're seeing in the U.S. and elsewhere? Uh, and, you know, there's a regional divide that's well-known, especially for folks in Alberta. Oh, yes. Um, but, it seems, but it seems to me, actually, that the bigger risk lies in the growing urban-rural divide. And, and as you mentioned, it's really come to manifest itself in, in politics, not just in the province of Alberta, but even if you look at the national political map. I, I mean, it, it, the Conservative Party of Canada has won the popular vote in the last two general elections, um, but, but it's been shut out of the government principally because uh, it hasn't been able to find uh, um, traction in our, our major cities. Um, I think it's fair to say, actually, that Canada's major cities are more dominant um, economically and politically in Canada than probably anywhere else amongst our peer jurisdictions. Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, represent about a third of, of total economic activity in the country. If you add Edmonton, Calgary, Ottawa, Gatineau, you're approaching north of 50% of total economic activity. To put that in some context for your listeners, um, you have to have 30 American metropolitan areas to get to something representing 50% of U.S. GDP. So cities matter a great deal in Canada. Our cities are a huge source of economic dynamism and creativity and, and diversity. I don't want to make this sound like it's a, a criticism of cities, but if you want to kind of protect against the rise of polarization along the lines of the urban-rural divide, then I think we need to recognize that these divides exist and start to build a bit of a policy program um, that bridges that divide before it, it, it becomes a, a real fault line in our society and politics. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, it's not a criticism of cities. In fact, a lot of Canadian cities are sort of the envy of the world, right? We hear that all the time right. in terms of quality of living and all the rest. Calgary does well, Toronto does well, Vancouver does very well. So so we know that it's paying off in, in, in spades for the country in many ways. But what does it mean for rural areas if, if that's where all the GDP is focused and all the development and the creativity that you're talking about? Rural areas are left behind. Would that be a good way of describing it? There's something of that occurring. That's right. Um, 
And these trends have really been exacerbated in the past couple of decades. There's been a rise of what some scholars refer to as the so-called superstar cities. The cities just matter more and more economically, especially prior to the pandemic. Perhaps we can get into some changes that may be emerging in the form of remote work and so on that may push back against these trends. Um, but the fact is our cities just matter a lot. They've come to matter a great deal economically. They've been, you know, one way to think about it is cities like Calgary and Edmonton have been screaming at the top of their lungs for workers and people have been responding. And um, that's created a lot of economic activity and dynamism and diversity and all the rest in those places. Um, but it hasn't been matched by similar um, um, progress in, in rural and remote areas. And one way to think about it, um, there's this great line, the so-called big sort. Uh, in some ways, people, we've had this sort occurring politically where people with certain kind of credentials and experiences and political preferences have increasingly concentrated in cities and people with a different set of backgrounds and experiences and political preferences have concentrated or remained in, in rural and, and remote areas. And, and that's what's manifesting um, in the political or electoral map uh, that we saw emerge in, in the recent Alberta election. Right, exactly. So you're, you've got the different worldviews, the different circumstances, and they come together and we see the increasing polarization. Now, first of all, the question is, we'll talk about how you might be able to fix it. Should we fix it, Sean? I mean, in terms of if, if that's the way things are going, I mean, it's, it's sort of the, this is what the market dictates. This is what people want. This is, I mean, isn't that sort of the natural evolution of things? I guess? It's a brilliant question, and I suspect that um, listeners will have uh, different points of view on the answer. As I say in, in the piece that you kindly referred to, it's sort of a prudential question, it seems to me, because as you, as you rightly point out, these forces that are leading towards uh, urbanization, which is leading towards the concentration of economic activity and, and these dynamic job-creating cities, isn't a case of markets malfunctioning. It's a case of markets doing precisely what they do, uh, which is direct capital, uh, not just financial capital, but human capital as efficiently as possible. And I think what I'm, what I'm saying here is if you, if you, if you're concerned about stability, if you're concerned about social cohesion, uh, which I think we ought to be on the aftermath of what we've seen occur in the U.S. and elsewhere, then there probably is a role for public policy to try to catalyze uh, investment and job creation in rural and, and economically distressed places so that they don't become sources of agitation and, and, and grievance and, and, and all the rest. Um, it's a prudential question, um, uh, as I say, but I, I think on balance, I'm persuaded, um, um, that it's something we ought to at least try to do and, and try to do in a way that is at the risk of sounding like an economist is least distortionary as possible. You know, <laughs> there have been a lot of efforts over the years to try to boost uh, investment and job creation in, in the Maritimes mm -hmm. or other rural places, and they haven't worked very well, um, I think it's fair to say. Um, so we have to be clear-eyed about the benefits and the costs of what I'm talking about, but I think on balance, um, the benefits are worth it. And Sean, the fix that you talk about in your piece that you wrote for the Hub um, is something called opportunity zones, where some of the things we're talking about, the, the job creation, the GDP, the economic, I don't know, vim and vigor, isn't confined to the cities, right? You sort of expand it outside of the cities. Give us an idea what opportunity zones look like. Yeah, I'll try not to be, I'll try to be as least wonky as I can for your listeners, but 
you know, if you start from the premise that this is something we ought to try to do and that we want to do it in a way that learns the lessons of all of these past failures, a lot of white elephants out there in, in rural parts of the country where policymakers had big ideas about these places being the next home to the next big idea. And then, of course, it, it didn't it didn't work out. I think Opportunity Zones look to be a kind of interesting model. It, it started in the U.S. in the aftermath of the Trump election. Democrats and Republicans came together. The, the legislation was actually co-sponsored by um, Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, and Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina. And in a nutshell, uh, what Opportunity Zones do is they um, provide for some tax incentives uh, for investors to direct their capital in um, places that have been designated as opportunity zones. And they've been designated that, that way because they underperform according to different economic uh, criteria. The low investment, low economic activity, relatively low job creation, and so on. So there are 8,600 of these zones spread out across the United States. This policy has been in place for a few years. And as I referred to in the article that you mentioned, there seems to be some early signs that it, it's, it's working reasonably well. It, uh, uh, the communities that are that are designated opportunity zones seem to be seeing an, an influx in investment. Um, that this policy has pulled a lot of capital uh, into those communities, and so I wouldn't describe it as a silver bullet by any means. Um, but if you do accept the premise that this is something we ought to be concerned about, opportunity zones look like one of the more innovative and interesting ideas on offer. Um, can, I, can I raise one other sure. point yeah, that of I kind of alluded to earlier, and that is, what about um, the rise of remote work? Uh, you know, yeah. to what extent is that going to sort of naturally um, start to reduce necessarily the concentration of economic activity and populations and so on in our major cities? And this, of course, is an open question at, at this level where at this point, we're sort of speculating, but here in Ontario, where I am, um, there is some evidence that, that that's occurring, that people are leaving the city of Toronto principally, you know, because of uh, this combination of high housing prices, but also the ability to uh, work remotely. And I, I think it's a kind of interesting development. So far, people are mostly moving into peripheral communities. Yeah, um, yeah. But if remote work and hybrid work are, are a durable part of, of our uh, of our economic lives, one can see a world where perhaps cities um, come to loom less large in our economy and our politics. And depending on how one thinks about these things, that may not be a bad idea. For, for this reason, if nothing else, it may allow for greater interaction between people in cities and people in peripheral yeah. and rural communities. And it seems to me it can create the kind of empathy that we need and understanding um, to push back against the kind of polarization along urban rural lines. It's a fascinating conversation. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. I do appreciate it.